Welcome to The Legal Impact, presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, Laura Canoy. Today, why our guest is deeply concerned about what he calls a revolution in administrative law by the U.S. Supreme Court. We're talking with Professor John Graby. He teaches constitutional law, civil procedure, and related courses at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. He's also director of the school's Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service, and he's a contributing writer for a variety of publications. And Professor Graby, welcome to The Legal Impact. It's great to have you. It's, it's great to be here, Laura. Thank you for inviting me. So let's unpack, if we could, this revolution in administrative law that you wrote about recently, Professor Graby, in the New Hampshire Bulletin. First of all, I have to say, administrative law sounds kind of dry. So share some examples, please, of cases in this field that might matter to the average person. Okay, sure. I, well, let me start with three recent cases that actually exemplify the, you know, the concerns that I have. So the Supreme Court has recently held that President Biden's clean power plan was not within the statutory authorization that, uh, yeah, on which it was based. So basically held that the clean power plan was illegal. That, of course, was a comprehensive plan designed to try to move sources of pollution to cleaner sources, to generators of pollution, rather, to cleaner sources. That has a huge impact on all of us. Another recent case involved the Biden administration's attempt to forgive some student loan debts in order to address some of the issues that were coming out of the COVID pandemic and the effects on the economy of that. Finally, a third example of a case that, you know, had, has broad impact and really matters was the case where the Supreme Court also said to the Biden administration that it could not require uh, masking and periodic testing in order to deal with COVID through OSHA, which is, of course, the federal agency that enforces workplace safety. So it, you're right. It is a dry area of the law. It's very statutory-based. It, it requires you to get granular and in the weeds. But the, uh, you know, we are basically ruled federally by the federal administrative state. You know, Congress doesn't enact a lot of statutes that directly affect us these days. So it's really administrative agencies that are under the direction of the president who regulate us at the national level. And the, the signals coming from the Supreme Court loud and clear are that the administrative state's authority to do this is going to be significantly rolled back. Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, if you care about clean air, if you care about student debt, if you care about health issues at the workplace, you know, these boring-sounding cases are actually quite relevant to our daily lives. Absolutely. So how has the U.S. Supreme Court, Professor Graby, until recently, approached this field of the law? What's, its, what's been its general philosophy? Well, until recently, the, the Supreme Court and federal courts generally tended to defer to federal agencies on questions of whether they had the statutory authority to do what they were contemplating doing. So, you know, administrative agencies are creations of federal statutes enacted by Congress. So Congress will create, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency, and then it has statutes like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, which authorize the EPA to take various regulatory actions. Now, until recently, when the EPA would interpret the statutes that it was authorized to enforce, courts would defer to reasonable interpretation in situations where the statutory authorization might have been a little bit ambiguous. So basically, there was a thumb on the scale of letting agencies innovate and regulate. That is no longer the case. 
major Supreme Court case from 1984 called Chevron was the case that announced this doctrine of deference. And Chevron is no longer really being applied by the Supreme Court. In fact, there's a case on its dock at this term which explicitly invites the court to overrule Chevron. The court may or may not do that, but in practical terms, it's not applying the Chevron doctrine anymore. Wow. So when did you start to see a change in the way that the court views these administrative cases, a change in this doctrine of of deference to federal agencies that you mentioned? Well, it's really as the court has changed, as the makeup of the court has changed over the last several years. With Justice Kennedy's retirement uh, and his replacement by Justice Kavanaugh, uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, ascended to the seat held by Justice Scalia, who, although conservative, did authorize federal agencies to exercise quite broad powers. And Justice Gorsuch is much stricter than Justice Scalia. And then finally, of course, the replacement of Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg with Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who is much more skeptical about federal power and federal administrative agencies exercising, you know, sort of robust authority over us all. What did that change that you just described look like, Professor Gravy? Well, it's, it's, it's taken on a couple of forms. So as I just said before, you know, the way in which administrative agencies become empowered is through Congress passing statutes that authorize them to act. One thing that the court has been doing recently is construing the statutes authorizing agencies to act much more narrowly. The court has adopted a doctrine that it dubs the major questions doctrine. And this doctrine holds that when an administrative agency takes some new regulatory action that has significant political or economic impact, the court is going to look very, very skeptically at the statutory authority for it to so act. And if, in fact, it's not absolutely clear in the statute that the agency has this authority, then the court is going to apply the major questions doctrine and hold that the agency has exceeded its authority. And that is very inconsistent with the Chevron doctrine, by the way. But so one way that the court has done this is to just much more narrowly read the grants of authority that Congress has provided to administrative agencies. The court has also indicated a potential interest in coming at this the other way. So you might be thinking, okay, well, Congress just needs to be much clearer in terms of the authority that it gives to these administrative agencies but not so fast um, because the court has also expressed interest in reviving a doctrine that it hasn't applied since 1935, known as the non-delegation doctrine, which holds that if administrative agencies delegate too much power, if Congress delegates too much power to administrative agencies, we might have a constitutional problem because it is Congress that is supposed to be exercising legislative power, and it is executive agencies that are supposed to be implementing what Congress says. When, however, Congress hands de facto legislative power over to administrative agencies, the court is suggesting, this doctrine of of non-delegation might be violated. Now, the court hasn't gone so far to hold that yet. It's used the major questions doctrine instead. But basically, the court is coming at the issue from two different directions. And so administrative agencies are going to have to steer between Scylla and Charybdis. On the one hand, avoiding overly construing their statutory authority. And in situations where Congress said, no, 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 you you really have a lot of authority, there might be a constitutional problem. Wow. So this is really a civics lesson, John. So how might federal agencies respond given this philosophy on the U.S. Supreme Court? Is there a way that they can approach crafting regulations that might 
safeguard their authority or their ability to carry out policy? You know, it's, I think it's really tough. I mean, I think, I think that a likely consequence of this is that federal agencies may be deterred from experimenting or may be just a little bit less ambitious when they seek to address, you know, the sorts of problems that are addressed at the national level through administrative agencies. What about Congress? Are they thinking about this? Are they talking about crafting the policies that they craft differently to avoid these types of situations that might come up given the Supreme Court's, again, new approach? Well, as we know, as we turn on the news every day, Congress is not very functional right now. So I would say that addressing this problem is, is really probably not at the top of Congress's agenda. There is also the fact that we live in divided government and that, you know, Republicans control the House of Representatives and Republicans are no great fans of federal regulatory power. And so, you know, Congress is unlikely to step in and, and seek to address this unless, um, you know, the presidency and both houses of Congress, you know, come back into the hands of Democrats. But even then, you know, at bottom, the problem is rooted in the Constitution, according to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court says, basically, you have to have Congress be the one that exercises legislative power, and it has to be federal agencies that execute the laws that Congress enacts. And there's really not a lot that Congress can do you know, even if it disagrees with the court's interpretation, uh, to avoid this problem of judicial review and the fact that the Supreme Court has the final say in our system about what the Constitution means. What are some upcoming cases where we might see even more indication of this revolution that you've written about, Professor Graby? Sure. So, I mean, this, I think it's really clear that this agenda of rolling back federal regulatory authority um, has not reached its end point. Um, in one case uh, that the court has agreed to hear this year, the, the, one of the parties is explicitly arguing for revival of this non-delegation doctrine I spoke about a minute ago. Again, that's the doctrine that holds that there are constitutional limits on how much authority Congress can hand over to administrative agencies when that authority seems to be legislative. Um, we'll see if a majority of the court is prepared to revive the non-delegation doctrine, but in a, in a couple of recent cases, several members of the court have indicated an interest in doing so. Another case that's on the court's agenda for this term asks, is, going, is asking the court to overrule the Chevron doctrine that I also spoke about. That's, again, the doctrine that holds that courts should defer to reasonable interpretations by administrative agencies of their authorizing legislation. Whether the court explicitly overrules Chevron, a 1984 case, or not, is, I think, largely beside the point. The, 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 the bottom line is that this court is not proceeding in the way that Chevron contemplated. So those are a couple of cases. And then there's another case that actually is focused on independent agencies, because Congress has created a number of, of agencies that it seeks to, to insulate from the political process. I think a majority of this court is quite skeptical about independent agencies. It subscribes to what is known as the unitary executive theory, which holds that the president needs to be able to control any and all entities and persons who execute the law. And if that's the case, you know, independent agencies like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau are constitutionally problematic in, a, in the view of a, a majority of this Supreme Court. So I'm guessing that some people are going to be happy with the court's new approach, feeling that it's a necessary barrier to congressional or executive overreach, you know, that the judicial branch is doing what the founders imagined. It's providing that important check 
on the other two branches when they go overboard. So what's your interpretation there? Absolutely. Many people see this as a long overdue correction that, you know, in the past century or so, we've seen this gigantic growth in federal regulatory authority. That was not something that was contemplated at the founding. The natural consequence of a rollback of federal authority is to devolve power down to states and localities. And there are a lot of people who would rather see us being regulated principally at the state and local level and not at the federal level. So like everything in our politics, there are those who, who favor these new directions um, and uh, there are those who are concerned about them. The court is now seen by many Americans as another political body. What are the politics of what you see happening here with these administrative law cases? Well, I mean, you know, it's we, we had a former president who used to talk about the court in terms of, you know, you know, Trump judges and Trump justices and Obama judges and Obama justices and Bush. But, you know, so, you know, this idea of, of the court being a political entity and not simply an institution that that does legal interpretation, that's been trumpeted really from the highest sources of our government. And I, I realize I didn't mean that to be a play on words. The, you know, the consequence of that is, that, you know, is this just becomes the court is becoming another forum where our, our differences are, are being fought over. I mean, it, you know, all your listeners certainly know about some of the major decisions the court has handed down in the last couple of years, so, you know, the abortion decision really being at the top of the list. People are pleased. People are frightened, you know, and it just sort of depends on what your view of the proper use of, of, of judicial power is that would inform your reaction to these cases. In the article that you wrote about this, Professor Graby, there was a great painting by Raphael called School of Athens, which depicts Plato and Aristotle in dialogue about their respective philosophical approaches. It's a lovely, a lovely picture. What is each man doing in the picture, Professor Graby, and how does that help you explain this administrative law issue that you see going on now at the U.S. Supreme Court? Yeah, this is, a, this is one of my favorite paintings. I have a print of this painting actually hanging in my office, and I use it when I talk to my students about constitutional law all the time. So as you say, Aristotle and Plato are in the center of the painting. Aristotle has his hand extended out over the ground while Plato is pointing up towards the heavens. And the traditional interpretation of this is that Plato is advocating for formalism and for being principled as a philosophical approach and that there is truth with a capital T and justice with a capital J. And it is the role of those who engage in philosophy. And I think we could say that the Supreme Court engages in philosophy that they should be formalistic and that they should always be striving to discover truth. And Aristotle, and it's been understood that Aristotle, by extending his hand over the ground, says, yes, but experience here on earth also matters. Consequences matter. Um, and so I've always thought it's just a great way of capturing this this dialogue that takes place between those on the court who say that in interpreting our Constitution, the, our, our job uh, is simply to discover truth. What was the original meaning of the text in question? And we don't worry about consequences. Now, that's the dominant view on the Supreme Court today. There are six justices who more or less subscribe to that view, who say that our job is to be an archaeologist. Our job is to be an umpire. Our job is to discover. It's not for us to worry about the consequences of constitutional meaning. And then there are three justices on the court who are more open to the idea that constitutional meaning should take account 
of experience, should take account of consequences, that our Constitution should be interpreted so as to be a good Constitution for a diverse 21st century society. Wow. Endlessly fascinating. Plenty to keep a constitutional law professor busy. Uh, Professor Graby, thank you very much for being with me on The Legal Impact. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Anytime. That's Professor John Graby. He teaches constitutional law and civil procedure at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. He's also director of the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service. I'm your host, Laura Canoy, Director of Community Engagement at the Rudman Center. Our show is recorded, edited, and produced by the Marlon Fitzwater Center for Communication at Franklin Pierce University. Opinions discussed on The Legal Impact do not constitute legal advice or represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The Legal Impact.